0: Thanks for downloading the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. In this episode, as part of the healthcare systems, Regional and Comparative Perspectives in Britain and Ireland, 1850 to 1960 conference, a paper by Dr. Kieran Wallace of Trinity College Dublin. His paper was entitled Feverish Activity, Dublin Corporation and the Smallpox Outbreak of 1902. So I come to this as a my main interest is in urban history. So um the, the medical application of urban history is a kind of a a, a sideline for for me, so if I am missing bits in the larger medical provision uh, argument let me know Um, so in researching the Dublin period Dublin City Council history in 1900 to 1914 I came across one incident that stood out but I couldn't really use in my main thesis Um, so I was delighted to get a chance to talk about it in another forum the Dublin Municipal Council, generally known as the Corporation, was very prone to obfuscation, delay, and avoiding new responsibilities. But in late 1902 and early 1903, the Corporation sprang into action with cat like agility when smallpox arrived in the city. Um, and this kind of fascinated me. And that's what I'm going to talk about here today. <clears throat> A bit of background for people who may not be familiar with the history of the city, Dublin at the start of the 20th century was, um, had a reputation, and reputation is the key word here, had a reputation as an overcrowded, dilapidated and poor city. Old and badly maintained housing stock provided inadequate shelter for a growing population. Uh, unemployment and underemployment were widespread in a city with few large-scale industries. Decaying sanitary infrastructure and allegedly poor enforcement of sanitary regulations meant that disease was a constant threat and the risk of widespread contagion in the packed slum districts was very real. Two things should be pointed out here. First, other cities in the United Kingdom who enjoyed better reputations than Dublin were also prone to the same disease as scarlatina, typhus, cholera and so forth. There were even alarmed discussions in the early 1900s of bubonic plague on city councils across the two islands. Secondly, the dilapidated and diseased Dublin described above was surrounded by a band of wealthier and healthier suburbs. These had emerged as independent. Uh, yeah. These had emerged as <coughs> independent townships during the late 19th century, and despite the city's best efforts to amalgamate them under its control, two strongholds still survived. The prosperous townships of Rathmines and Pembroke, and this map is uh, from the late 19th century. By the time I'm talking about here. The upper A, B, and C townships had been absorbed, so we're talking about E and F at the bottom. So the sort of six o'clock position and um, sort of four o'clock position. E straight south of the city is Rathmines, and F slightly to the south uh, east is Pembroke, which is more or less between here and the city. Your hotel, if you're staying, is in Pembroke, or what was Pembroke. So these two had uh, these had held out against amalgamation. Um, uh, they they were prosperous, they were middle class. Uh, they ...ran their own affairs. But more than economics separated these townships from the city. Dublin was predominantly Catholic and strongly nationalist. City Hall, indeed, sometimes behaved as a sort of home rule parliament in waiting. Um, Rathmines and Pembroke councils, on the other hand, were unionist... ...and had a much higher proportion of non-Catholic residents than in the city. Their resistance to amalgamation with the city was based as much on politics as it was on class. It was convenient to highlight the city's shortcomings as examples of nationalists' inability to govern themselves. Other townships existed further out along the south coast, the most important of which was Kingstown, a major gateway port to the city. So this highly localised patchwork of council did not lend itself to an efficient system of healthcare, care, especially when urgent and radical action was required. Num- numerous districts in Dublin suffered from overcrowding. Two areas of importance in this uh, paper, in the smallpox outbreak of 1902 and 3, are the north docks around Newfoundland Street and the area around the corporation, fruit and vegetable markets, particularly Church Street. I'll show you a map shortly. Severe overcrowding existed in the Church Street area. And it was one of the most dilapidated streets in the north inner city, Indian city entirely. Um, the 1901 census shows over 700 people living in quite a tight area, um, with like, truly foul uh, side alleys, courts, off the street. Um, in 1912, some of the buildings just collapsed in on top of residents killing people, and um, it was that decayed. But other significant vectors, apart from overcrowding, um, vectors of infection were pawn shops where poorer Dubliners deposited and redeemed clothes and bedding, and schools where children from infected houses mixed with their uninfected classmates. So that's a kind of sense of the city. Um, The corporation, Dublin Corporation, the city council, and the local councils of Rathmines and Pembroke, um, they uh, funded beds in a number of hospitals across the region. According to a Royal Commission into the Public Health of the City in 1900, the number of of fever hospital beds in Dublin was considerably larger in proportion to population than elsewhere. So this reflects back to the measurement of national sort of comparatives. Um, But because these beds were not always available, the report found, due to the poverty and consequent general ill health of the people, the situation was not as good as the blank statistics might make it first appear. The 1900 inquiry pointed out uh, the lack of a dedicated smallpox hospital in the city, Two fever hospitals uh, tended to the various infections that arose in the population, Cork Street Hospital on the south side and the Hardwick Hospital on the north side. In January 1902, there was a worrying outbreak of typhus in Church Street, this overcrowded street, (coughs) um, and this had put the infectious disease capacity of the city under some strain. Dublin's high death rate and generally poor sanitary reputation had resulted in the formation of the Dublin Sanitary Association, the DSA, in 1872, um, I think this is interesting because it's this idea of professional volunteerism and professional commentators who are another force looking in on these the situations between state and city governance. The census of 1901 shows that the membership of the DSA, the Dublin Sanitary Authority, was exclusively Protestant, consisting mainly of medical men along with some engineers and lawyers – The DSA was a frequent critic of the corporation, pointing out failures in regulations and prodding councillors into adopting the steady stream of permissive legislation flowing from Westminster to local councils across the UK. The difference in religious affiliation, social class, occupation and, by deduction, and I'm making just a deduction here, the difference in politics between the DSA and Dublin Corporation did not make for smooth relations between the two bodies. The Sanitary Association expressed the opinion that while the corporation might build or fund hospitals and clinics... It should never be involved in the actual operation of them. Um, The DSA criticised location choices for fever hospitals and emergency service provision and so forth. Um, Smallpox had appeared periodically in the Irish population as in Britain prior to this. um, After a faltering start in the 1840s, government efforts at vaccination had been remarkably successful. Deborah Brunton reports uh, vaccination rates of up to 90%, which she compares with 70% in Britain at the same time. Uh, This is in the uh, latter quarter of the 19th century. Since the introduction (coughs) of compulsory vaccination for smallpox in 1863, the Poor Law Guardians in Ireland had administered the scheme of vaccination. A major overhaul of Irish local government in 1898 appointed city councils and urban district councils as the responsible sanitary authorities, and this included the programme of compulsory vaccination of infants for smallpox. Ireland did not experience the prolonged and vocal anti-vaccination agitation seen in Britain. Protesters there argued, as you know, that compulsion undermined their liberties as British subjects, it infringed their God-given rights as parents, and put their children at risk by introducing infected matter or filth into their bodies. Although th- that movement was a broad anti-authority movement, um, I can see a, a, strong, a strong strain of religious dissent within the movement, and the appeals to a fundamental freedoms um, producing this kind of parents' conscientious objections rights um, seems to speak to an older kind of religious identity or or, um, uh, dissenting religious identity. This produced the clause allowing for conscientious objection uh, in the vaccination legislation in Britain. There was little or no protest in Ireland in the 1890s and 1900s, and consequently the Irish vaccination legislation made no allowance for conscientious objection. A number of reasons might account for the absence of resistance to vaccination, compulsory vaccination. Um, the Irish perhaps had a longer experience of intrusive legislation and hence didn't see compulsion as particularly a radical departure. Um, <clears throat> the Vaccination Act arrived along with the Registration of Births Act in 1863, making the two seem part of a gradual officialising of, I- of public life in the 19th century. And finally, vaccination appears to have no sectarian aspect to it. There was no objection from any sets of bishops or clerics and there was no sense of communal threat so the population adapted to the new regime quite calmly. Indeed, so successful was the policy in Ireland that the British medical establishment expressed envy at Irish levels of vaccination and commentators called for English borough councils to be appointed as sanitary authorities as they were in Ireland. Um, So the smallpox outbreak itself, this is a tight map of the north inner city. Um, The red diamonds show reported cases of smallpox in the opening weeks of the outbreak. Um, the Docklands down to the right hand side down to the east um, the blue I've had to overlay these these aren't perfect but the blue H's represent hospitals the H towards the bottom is pointing down towards Cork Street which doesn't feature significantly but the H in the top left hand corner is uh, the Hardwick Hospital and that is a complex of um, the North Dublin Union um, infirmaries it's, it's a, a campus if you like of sort of um, health provision and incarceration of various types um, the markets area here (coughs) written in, and above it the letter S is for a school, that's George's Hill School, which plays a role in the outbreak. So February 1902, um, there was a short outburst of smallpox, um, and it was a scare that seemed to be easily dealt with. A sailor arrived from Glasgow, stayed in a boarding house in Townsend Street in the south inner city, was found to have smallpox, sent to the fever hospital, and um, was sort of ticked off the list, Um, a couple of weeks later, a girl arrived in the Hardwick Hospital. She too was found to be recovering from smallpox and was sent to a convalescent home. And by February, the Corporation's Public Health Committee declared the scare was over so we could relax. Summer 1902, another little flurry arrives when uh, a sailor comes in, uh, this time from Liverpool and uh, so, as you see, all disease comes from somewhere else. Um, and um, the uh, arrives in... Uh, he's put, in, uh, put into Cork Street Hospital um, and another sailor comes in as from Glasgow on a steamer and stayed all from Cork Street, but it's found that some of the cases later emerge from Cork Street after these patients have left, that there seems to be some sort of residual infections left within the wards. But the outbreak proper comes in winter 1902. 22nd of December, Liverpool sailor comes to Newfoundland Street. Um, well, it's a port town, so what can you do? Um, and this, this sailor in December 22 is... Hospitalised in the Hardwick Fever Hospital on the north side here. Uh, two days later, a youth comes into the hospital with some unrelated disease, but leaves, with smallpox. And this is the beginning of the transmission out into the population, by the looks of things. Um, i would mentioned a typhus outbreak in overcrowded Church Street. Uh, a girl in February 3, from that crowded house in Church Street, this house was occupied by 13 families, comprising 42 persons, and the report at the time said all were poor, some in absolute want. Um, so a young girl who'd recovered from typhus in early February goes back into the hospital feeling unwell, sits in a crowded waiting room and discovers she has smallpox, so they then have to trace all the people in the waiting room, and this waiting room is in this upper sort of campus of, of hospitals. Um, There's a constant flow. Day by day, the report, this is the City Council's, um, the health, uh, Public Health Committee's report on the day-by-day transmission of disease um, and it reports the, the sort of the spread of these little red diamonds across the city. Um, and tramps and people are found to be sort of in doorways with smallpox. Uh, until finally, by the 20th of March, the disease now assumed alarming proportions, according to the um, committee. Seven cases arrive in one day, and then cases arrive in, in sort of dozens. By the end of March, 64 cases were confirmed in the city. Um, including one on the southern inner city so it was across the river and it was moving out of control. Um, In April um, just to give you a sense of uh, yeah, by the end of the summer there were 360 cases 33 deaths. Of those 360 cases they seemed keen to point out 55 were children and I'll come back to that in a moment so 360 confirmed cases uh, 33 deaths and incarcerated in the refuge 1,402 people um, which I'll describe in a moment the corporation's reaction sorry it seems to end the reporting ends in the end of July they seem to be content that that's the end of it it has petered out um, to only a dozen cases in July of 1903 even before the crisis had arose however and this kind of goes back to Sally's point about preparation or la- lack of preparation for infection um, the corporation had made some contingency measures the medical superintendent for public health Sir Charles Cameron had got the city to pay for a refuge or isolation unit for people who came into contact with infected patients. The refuge could deal with, obviously, any disease, but smallpox was always the word they used in connection with it. Um, uh, in the 1890s, Cameron had arranged for the purchase of a house in Nicholas Street in the old inner city. They demolished the house to the left and right of it to make it an isolated, standalone refuge, and they chose a house specifically with a large yard at the back where, a cart, uh, where sort of an ambulance could come in and out without having to disload, unload people on the open street. The Corporation Refuge was to prove vital uh, in preventing a full-blown epidemic. So this is a map of, before the clearances of a crowded inner city area, which um, sort of, from the, at the top of the map, map is Christchurch Cathedral, you're coming down Patrick Street, and it's the Bull Alley area, which was later cleared by the Ivy Trust and the Guinness family to make way for sort of improved housing about 1904. Um, just to blow up a little, I'm, I'm estimating from photographs that the blank space in the middle of ruins is the yard There seems to be an entrance in to the corporation refuge um, and I'm taking it that the right hand yard is the yard into the refuge itself and the building is therefore to the front of that yard and it's these buildings here which you would see if you do the tourist trail to Dublin or whatever, you'd see these buildings are on the site more or less of where the refuge uh, was. So. Cameron had also contracted a convalescent home at Beneven in Finglas, about five miles northeast of the city, and this gave patients who were recovering somewhere to move to and thus free up beds in the isolation, in, in the refuge or in the, in the hospitals. Smallpox requires isolation, and a number of small isolation be- beds were available in the Hardwick and Cork Street Hospital. However, as these beds filled, the hospitals had to clear regular wards to allow additional isolation cases to be dealt with, but this was very disruptive of hospital provision and could only be a temporary measure. Corporation corporation officials expended great energy in tracking down contacts of actual confirmed cases. Family members and others who'd been in close contact with infected patients were uh, rounded up, and the corporation officials inspected in this period 2,700 houses, and they count this as being dozens of thousands of rooms uh, in total. They would sort of search out cases, search out contacts. Um, They removed these contacts in impressive numbers to the refuge. In total, as we see, 1,400 cases were removed to Nicholas Street, the large numbers meant that the refuge had to be extended from 30 beds to 48 and finally to 60. It could accommodate 60 patients at any one time by putting infants in with mothers. Um, uh, there were reports in the press of people calling for, you know, um, not so much food, but you know, toys and comic books and things for the children to be delivered to the refuge because people were obviously not allowed out. Each contact was given a bath and received a medical inspection. Staff destroyed their clothes and gave them replacement clothing. While they were in isolation... Public health officials then disinfected their homes or lodging houses, and um, both the interiors and the yards. Contacts were vaccinated or revaccinated before being released. Uh, this is a picture of the um, yard itself, and the, the tower-type building to the right appears to be the refuge. The sheds to the left is one of the extensions when the fever uh, became more intense. The towers, in the, the spires in the background are Christchurch and uh, the Synod Hall, and that is the uh, omnibus um, which they transported them in. Um, Removing people from their homes to hospital or to the refuge provided great logistical problems. Cab drivers began refusing to transport patients, and contacts could not be brought in public transport like the trams. So the corporation bought a 12-person omnibus, I'm hoping this isn't a 12-person omnibus, um, and two horses to cope with the demand. When not pulling the omnibus, the horses were busy hauling wagons with infected household goods to be destroyed. Cameron reported that the disinfection teams and the staff operated the destructor, which is a large furnace, and that they worked round the clock and on Sundays throughout the period, and he was at pains to praise their kind of 24-7 response to the crisis. As soon as num- numbers of the cases began to rise, the Corporation Public Health Committee got permission from the Council at large to build an emergency smallpox hospital on ground owned by the city down in the port. Um, this map means literally it's just showing you isolation of isolation. So this is on a spit of land heading down towards the Pigeon House port, part of the port. This is maybe um, a mile east of the, the city centre itself and it's sea on both sides, so it's a very well-chosen isolation uh, location. And then there's the hospital blown up on it, um, uh, reasonable complex there. Um, so they built this emergency hospital uh, on council land that they already owned. Um, they built it in record time, they procured a specialist prefab builder from England who erected a structure of wood and iron capable of holding 40 patients in only 21 days. Uh, to build this, the corporation borrowed £3,000 from the local government board for Ireland uh, the state agency responsible for Irish local councils and poor law boards. I'll return to the significance of this state loan uh, later on. Um, the Dublin Sanitary Authority complained bitterly about the location of an isolation hospital, even in this location, and wrote to the council, wrote to the papers, and wrote to the ferry company chairman and said, did you know your ferries are passing up a sea channel to the north of this, which has infected um, people staying in it? So they were quite obstructive. Um the city undertook a vigorous campaign of public vaccination. Um, and the, uh, this, So this is the hospital that they're being incarcerated in. The, I'm presuming that temporary hospital is the building to the left. This photograph is from the report. There must have been pre-existing brick buildings, these buildings on the right, but the, the emergency hospital seems to be the sheds to the left, and there is the interior Um And there it is, in the way of temporary buildings. There it is in 1971, still temporarily there. Um, And still providing it was a TB hospital afterwards. Um, So the city undertook a vigorous campaign of public vaccination, opening additional clinics and extending the operating hours at existing clinics. Posters were put up describing the early symptoms of smallpox and telling people not to go to hospital but to call a doctor to their homes. They also announced the times and locations of vaccination clinics and warned the public against concealing any suspected cases. New technology was even brought into use as citizens were urged to telephone the public health office to report any cases of smallpox. So if you come across a case, it's Dublin 200. Um, The uh, corporation, in its role as a sanitary authority, had the power to close schools where infection was known to be present and there was... Uh, there was a small flurry of cases that came out of Georges Hill School, this is the, the school just north of the markets on the earlier map, and they closed the school, um, and this was something of, of much debate, do we have the power to close the school, and they did, uh, to prevent that as being a kind of a concentrated infection area. Um, as a municipal license authority for pawnbroking, the corporation could also prohibit the handling of old clothes and bedding, or indeed close down pawn shops, thus c- preventing countless opportunities for further infection. Um Now comes my great man history bit, which seems to be a theme. Um, A significant weapon in the city's arsenal was the person and reputation of Sir Charles Cameron, Um, appointed Dublin Medical Officer for Health in 1874, medical superintendent in 1879, and he was also the Chief Sanitary Officer from 1881. Um, He was responsible for numerous reforms in public health administration. Um, Cameron was considered to be a permanent feature of public life. He was also, interestingly, a member of the Dublin Sanitary Authority. So while these... People were gathering in evenings to criticise the behaviour of the corporation. He was actually the main person involved in guiding that policy. When the Dublin County Authority um, were sort of seriously resisting the building of the isolation hospital, he more or less said, "Tough, like he wasn't having any further part in it." He seemed to just sort of write back and say, "This is not up for any further discussion." Um, He was president of the the British Association for Public Health and he brought that association to Dublin on its annual congress in in 1898 Um, and he seemed to be sort of a powerhouse of work um, as we've come across a few of these municipal officials over the past day and a half. Um, So officials sent out in Cameron's name and in the name of the corporation Public Health Committee were taken very seriously by the public. I've already mentioned that the independent townships which survived on Dublin's southern boundary Um, They had their own medical officers for health, and each council could adopt or reject legislation on the notification of infectious diseases. Given that such acts cost money to implement, and every local authority had its own financial constraints and problems, this local option could produce a piecemeal approach to public health. Inefficient in normal times, such an uncoordinated approach to an epidemic could obviously be fatal. Councillors in Rathmines and Pembroke and Kingstown townships were typically prudent businessmen who focused on keeping the level of local rates or taxes to a minimum, introducing new public services or amenities increased the load on the council's finances and hence on the annual rate paid by voters, the voters who voted them into office in the first place. In addition, the suburbs were much healthier than the city, with modern housing, better sanitation and few very poor inhabitants. Suburban councillors were less inclined to fear disease than their city counterparts, at least until it actually arrived. Rathmines and Pembroke did form a joint hospital board, and they cooperated to build a fever hospital in 1902 at Clonsky, at Verge and Clonsky. Again, the DSA complained. Um, a local resident took an injunction, took them to court. Said, "My, I own a house and a series of houses um, right next door to this hospital. Nobody will buy it, and rates will go down." Um, and this had to be debated in court. Uh, the court case didn't come up until the smallpox uh, um, outbreak had passed. But these are the kind of uh, pressures against developing that councils had to deal with. Um, the potential for sorry, um, different councils. Would in, for instance uh, uh, they would adopt the, in, they would adopt the uh, Notification of Diseases Act for smallpox at different dates And, for instance smallpox been seen as an indicator for chickenpox um, So, and they made different investments in inspectors and in medical staff so the potential for leakage of disease from one district into another was very real half a century of bad blood in addition between these two townships and the city meant that a coordinated action was difficult to achieve across the region at the 1900 inquiry into Dublin's death rate the Medical Officers for Health from Belfast, Liverpool and Woolwich had all commented that Dublin was faced with particular risks because of its fragmented nature, this sort of tight basket of independent townships which had been kind of wiped out in most of the cities in the UK at that stage, creating large regional authorities across Greater Dublin or Greater Liverpool. Um, Kingstown... uh, the ports to the south of the city had tried to combine with other urban district councils, had tried to combine with Dawkey and with um, Killiney to form a joint board. Kingston would have been far bigger than these two very small rural councils um, to form to make an isolation hospital, but they didn't want to play. Kingston was left debating and debating, can we afford to make our own isolation hospital as a port? It was particularly crucial, and the local government board for Ireland was constantly saying, guys, where's this isolation hospital? Um, their local medical officer also pressed for an isolation hospital, but to no avail. The district's busy councillors, and these are unpaid voluntary politicians if you like, they didn't want to take on the additional responsibility and the cost, and despite the fact that smallpox was named as a major worry, um, and the doctor said to them, well, what would you do if smallpox arrived the next day, they said we would refer this to our local health committee to look at. Um, it's interesting just in, in the difference that in power or influence from the local government board in Ireland. Um, the doctor from the local government board seemed to have no power to make them act to build an isolation hospital and um, because they, they listened to him he's down the minutes presenting and arguing against everything that we may our earlier decision to just refer to the health board and not to their health committee and not build one um, the doctors within the different townships did seem to talk to Cameron Cameron was very influential so there were kind of professional contacts which helped to provide some kind of level playing field so what about the people who were the subject of all this activity the public were generally cooperative and compliant uh, corporation officials hospitalised hundreds of cases of smallpox, they isolated well over a thousand contacts and vaccinated many thousand more. Despite the worries of the Dublin Sanitary Association, there were remarkably few cases of concealment and no visible resistance to isolation or vaccination. Nonetheless, this widespread public cooperation and the small incidence of resistance can tell us something about public attitudes. Um, There were some cases of concealment. Court cases in the police court in 1903 show four different people in one sitting being uh, prosecuted for concealing cases. Um, A mother concealed her infected child in uh, Townsend Street. The case was discovered, we're not told how, and she was prosecuted with a fine of um, two or three pounds. I'm, I don't, it doesn't say how the case was reported if they were reported by neighbours I think that's quite a serious indication of public support for the health regime, because neighbours informing on neighbours would obviously be quite a taboo thing um, in like the crowded inner city there was a case of a, a, a milk supplier whose wife and three children were infected and he continued to both provide and supply milk from his dairy uh, in the city centre the other significant case of resistance, though, which I liked, was a woman in Ulster Street, near to Church Street, who fell ill with smallpox. Cameron recorded that, quote, the patient being in a respectable position, it was found impossible to induce her to go to hospital, end quote. And I think this reflects the social view of the time that respectable people were treated at home and that going to the hospital exposed you to additional risks. Well, we seen clearly that it did from the outbreak, the initial outbreak of the disease. More importantly, it revealed the fact that the corporation had neither the legal power to compel patients to go to hospital, nor to maintain them in the isolation unit in the refuge, yet between infected people and their families, over 2,000 Dubliners had obediently followed the instructions of council officials um, and uh, when this one lone respectable woman questioned the right to move her, the public health officials immediately backed off. In his report on the outbreak, Cameron reported to a surprising assumption in the public mind. He says, quote, although they could not be legally brought to the refuge or detained there unless with their consent. The contacts never made any objection. Probably they were under the impression that they could be compelled by law to go into it and obviously he didn't disabuse them of this impression. Um, So what did this forgotten victory in the battle against smallpox tell us about healthcare systems at the turn of the 20th century? The combination of voluntary and poor law hospitals in Dublin was just about able to cope with Dublin's day-to-day healthcare requirements. It's clear, however, that the system was too unwieldy to deal with an urgent public health crisis. During the 19th century, the state had worked with the voluntary sector and with independent medical professionals to deliver a successful vaccination programme against smallpox, but the deteriorating conditions in Dublin needed more than this. The Local Government Act for Ireland in 1898 greatly increased the powers of elected municipal councils by substantially widening the local franchise and widening the range of people who could serve on councils. Um, The 1898 Act made municipal councils much more democratic and gave them a very strong popular mandate. The council was a sanitary authority. Um, And that gave it great powers to act immediately under the 1898 Act. The smaller urban district councils had a greater difficulty. Um, They were, in a sense, more personally identifiable by their voters. Um, For them to build a hospital meant you're taking money out of your voters' pockets, the same voters who are living next door to you, and that sort of uh, service provision versus keeping rates down uh, debate, I think, is more difficult for the smaller urban district councils. Um, Also, if a neighbouring council didn't adopt a particular disease notification act, there's no point in you adopting it. And this is evident in Kingstown, um, where Kingstown says, well, we'll adopt this act, we know we should, but what's the point if Docky and Blackrock don't do it, the two neighbouring councils, so we'll do it when you do it. And they all say, if only we were all made to do it together. And they appeal for central control. Um, uh, So um, perhaps the specialised nature of medicine... Sorry, an ever-growing array of municipal powers... Created in the public mind an acceptance of Dublin City Council, the corporation, as an all powerful administrative body. Perhaps also Dubliners felt that they should refer to the greater knowledge of experts in medical conditions. Um, And again, the role of the expert in municipal government is important here and feeds into the great man argument as to how individuals had such control. Um, Although patients and contacts were not charged any money for their hospitalisation or for the disinfection or replacement clothing and so forth, many of them must have lost many days' employment, and it's remarkable that there was not more resistance. The state's role at this point in history is interesting. There was no expectation that the state would directly become involved, obviously, in providing medical care, um, and that might have been a recipe for public resistance, but by empowering the local councils with legal powers to control public health, and crucially, by rapidly loaning substantial funds to to build the corporation hospital, the state protected public health nationally while harnessing detailed local knowledge as well as attracting broad popular support because the local council had this public mandate. There was a very bad relationship between the local government board for Ireland and Dublin Corporation. They were constantly fighting and sniping at each other politically. But the moment was a a crisis. The corporation seemed overnight to be able to turn to the local government board and say, problem, money, money flowed instantly and the hospital arrived. Um, uh, The locally elected council was central to the whole situation, in my opinion. Uh, No other agency had the capacity, popular mandate and swiftness of foot to respond to the crisis. The state did not see it as its direct role, neither did the public. The voluntary sector could not be expected to react quickly to provide accommodation, transport, building, personnel, large scale funding. In 1902 and 1903, Dublin's teeming slums, uh, it was only the municipal council with its expanding remit and democratic authority that could stop a crisis becoming a full blown epidemic. Thank you. <laughs>